Well, friends, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, church, we are, quote, on the way, as it were, on the way with Jesus as he journeys toward Jerusalem and all of those actions which will give rise to his ascension to the throne of heaven. We are, as we said at the beginning of this season, we are on a pilgrimage this ancient spiritual practice or holy habit in which one goes on a journey to seek spiritual significance. And like any good pilgrimage, one must stop along the way to look, to reflect, and to learn so that we can grow. And like we said at the beginning, to take this kind of journey Uh, one in which God's Holy Spirit is working to shape us into the image of Jesus, shaping us to become people of love. This kind of journey is both a beginning and an end. It is a beginning, a beginning of moving toward life and life to the full, as Jesus says. But as we've talked about so often, it is also an end. Because to find life and life to the full, we will find the end of our own will. Jesus himself says in the text today, if any one of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Or it's the posture of John the Baptist who says, Jesus must become greater and I must become less. Friends, one one thing is for certain, the longer that we follow Jesus, the more that we submit to the work of His Holy Spirit within us, the more our lives will flourish, even when that journey takes us in directions that we never dreamed about. Now, friends, I I don't need to say this, but I'm going to. Uh, we, We, as human beings, we are creatures of habit. Uh, Like it or not, we fall into habitual patterns that we subconsciously live out every single day. Take, for example, the old church joke that people are always a little put off when other people are sitting in, quote, their pew or their green chair. Either way. Now, the funny thing is we all know, right, that nobody bought tickets today that there are no numbered seats here in the Holy Cross sanctuary, but our habits, those deeply rooted patterns, lead us to sit probably in the same pew or chair week after week after week. In fact, many of you don't even think about it anymore. Your legs just take you to your pew. That's what they do. The same is true probably on your journey to church this morning. I suspect that most of us drive the same route every Sunday morning to get to this place. Uh, I know that I do. And funny thing is, there's lots of ways actually that I could take to get from my house here, but I drive the same well-worn route every Sunday. Why? (laughs) Probably because I believe it's the most efficient. And frankly, I don't want to think about it, which 
But she just paused long enough to say, we can address Brian driving and not thinking at the same time later, but nevertheless, don't want to do it. My want, listen, my want for efficiency doesn't change the fact that there are multiple ways to get here. Multiple ways all leading to the same destination. Like looking at Google Maps, I have one destination, but multiple routes with different timestamps. And here's the kicker. When the journey takes me out of my norm, like when somebody else drives me here, I have an opportunity to grow. Still, still end up in the same place, but because we've gone a different way, we'll have discovered something new about the world. And when God takes us out of our norm, we have an opportunity to learn something new about Him and perhaps ourselves. And friends, that, that learning, that's something new, that is needed, especially when following Jesus. You know, for Jesus, there is really only one destination. But what we learn along the way, what we learn about Him and about His kingdom and what it is we learn about ourselves, this is the fertile ground of spiritual growth. So, church, we're going to dive into that text, which we heard Jeff read just moments ago. Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27. So, you'll want to grab a Bible, the one you brought, hopefully, or one that we've provided for you. We do Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Now, as you get there, a bit of context. Uh, For the most part, for the most part, up to this point, Jesus has been revealing the, quote, at-hand kingdom. Since Mark chapter 1, Jesus has been declaring both with words and with actions that the time has come and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the kingdom is tangible. It is touchable. God's power and his authority are being revealed and manifested in works of healing, in the casting out of demons, and in the authoritative teaching of Jesus. And just before our text, we read about a man who was blind, and he comes to Jesus for healing. So Jesus does the Jesus thing. He spits on the man's eyes, and then he asks, Do you see anything? And the blind man's reply is this. He says, well, I see people that look like trees. So Jesus again does the Jesus thing, and the man sees everything clearly. Now some, when they read that particular narrative of a man born blind in which it takes Jesus twice to get him to see holy... Some have wondered if this healing went wrong the first time, wondering why it took Jesus two times to bring healing to the man. And and friends, while I'm not going to answer that particular question this morning, I do want us to hang on to this, that sometimes we see, but we don't see fully. Sometimes we see, 
but we don't see fully. And so here we are now in this text, chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus has taken the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, and the text says, on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Now, this phrase, on the way, sets the tone for the remainder of Mark's gospel. Because truthfully, truthfully, the remainder of the gospel is primarily Jesus teaching the disciples what it means to, quote, be on the way with Jesus. So on the way, Jesus asks, and that phrase is important for us because the remainder of the gospel is primarily Jesus teaching what it means for disciples to be, quote, on the way with Jesus. In other words, what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be a disciple? Now, quick sidebar, rabbis at the time of Jesus were teaching their disciples not only to know what they knew, but also to do what they did. So as Jesus teaches the disciples what it means to be on the way, he's teaching them not only what they should know, but also what it is they should do. And if they're doing it right, they should expect the same kind of reaction to their behaviors as the reactions to their rabbi's behavior. And so here we are then in Caesarea Philippi beginning to learn in full what it means to be on the way of Jesus. When Jesus asks, who do people, that is people they've met along the way, who do people say that I am? And of course, the disciples provide all of the answers they've thus heard, right? John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say a prophet. And then Jesus asks that incredibly pointed question, yes, but what about y'all, right? Who do y'all say that I am? That you there is plural, right? The holy y'all. Who do y'all say that I am? And then Peter, who is often the spokesperson, says, you are the Messiah. Now, in Matthew's gospel, we get Jesus' reaction to Peter's profession, which is basically a big round of applause, right? Jesus is like, yes, well done, Peter, good job. That came to you not by man, but that came to you by my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter, you see the truth of what's going on on here. I am indeed the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is going to restore the kingdom. I am the one who's going to thwart the enemies of God's people. I am the one who is going to ascend the throne. You see it, Peter. Well done. And then, then in Matthew's gospel, in Luke's gospel, and here in Mark's gospel, verse 31, it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. I think we could agree that this is not the direction that the disciples, nor most of us, believed it would go. 
Uh, Jesus basically drops kind of the largest bomb revelation in the Gospels, which is this. The destination for Jesus is clear. It is suffering, death, and resurrection. All the roads lead to it. There are no other destinations. This is it. And no matter what route one takes, Jesus is going to end up there. And then this, in verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) Just so we're clear, as if we can't be clear, but rebuke, rebuke is strong language, isn't it? In fact, it's the same Greek word that's used in Mark 1 when Jesus rebukes an evil spirit by saying these words, shut up. Or the same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes the storm in Mark chapter 4, yelling into the wind and the waves, what do you think? Shut up. So, Peter rebuking Jesus is, I suspect, fairly verbally forceful, like, shut up, Jesus. Now, can we just be honest? Like, that's not how we think we talk to Jesus, and yet it is here. It's almost like, it's almost like the blind man. In the narrative immediately before this, Peter sees that Jesus is Messiah, but he can't fully see. So Jesus, turning to look at his disciples, making sure that he's clear with them about what it means to be on the way, get it, rebukes Peter. Yes, same word. In fact, Jesus sees Satan using Peter as a mouthpiece. He sees Satan trying to deter him from the rescue mission that has been set by his father, to deter him from the inevitable end. Jesus sees Satan using Peter to sidetrack him from his purpose and his ultimate destination. You see, the concerns of God are far bigger and wider than any earthly throne, far bigger and wider than defeating Rome far bigger and wider than restoring Israel. The concerns of God have everything to do with a heavenly throne of defeating the enemies of sin and death and the devil and restoring all of creation to its created perfection. But to accomplish that, to ensure the life and this life to the full for you and me, the destination is suffering and rejection. It is abandonment and humiliation. It is. It is a throne of wood and hard stone. See, the destination for Jesus is clear. It is suffering and death and resurrection. All roads lead to it. There's no other destination. No matter what route one takes, it's going to end there. The destination is quite clear, but the result is also clear. The forgiveness of the world, forgiveness for you and me, Life, real life, full and abundant life, where all of our desires and our wants are filled by him and the death of our enemies, of the evil one and of death itself. 
You see, Jesus is on the way. He's on the way to his death and your life. But remember, church, I said Jesus, Jesus is now spending the bulk of his time talking about what it means to be a disciple on the way of Jesus, what it means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple, to know not only what the rabbi knows, but to do what the rabbi did and to expect the reactions that the rabbi received. And so then in verse 34, Jesus calls the crowds, not just the disciples, the crowds. And he says, essentially, whoever wants life is going to have to die, to die to themselves, to die to the idolatry that they are their own gods, that they are their own saviors, that they are their own sustainers, their own providers. In fact, they're going to have to deny themselves. They're going to have to pick up a cross. Disciples are going to have to move through suffering and death in order to find life, to find real life, full and abundant life. Jesus asks rhetorically and unequivocally, is anything worth more than your soul? A church, I suspect we could just wrestle that question of Jesus for days, if not months. Is anything worth more than your soul? You know, there's this story in the book of Acts. As the early Christian church is beginning to spread like wildfire, when the Jewish religious authority are filled with jealousy, and as a result, they arrest and ultimately flog the apostles before letting them go. And then we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it says this, the apostles, they left the Sanhedrin, that religious authority, and they were rejoicing. They were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. They rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. The destination for Jesus is clear. It is suffering and rejection and death and resurrection. Jesus is on the way to his death and your life. But church, we are on the way with Jesus. We are on a pilgrimage with him. And to follow him means a similar destination, suffering, death, and life. See, those of us, you and me, who are on the way, those of us, you and me, who are working to, to orient our lives around the words and the ways of Jesus, we should expect then that our journey with Jesus will lead to the same destination. We should expect that the destination leads to death 
death to selfishness and sin, death to control and earthly power, death to our own wills, so that, of course, we can find life. And we may, we may, like the apostles in the book of Acts, find ourselves facing suffering for the sake of the gospel, but I prayerfully hope that it's not flogging. Though, though I suspect there will be lots of little deaths. Death of our insatiable desire to be the center of our world, the insatiable desire to be our own rulers, to be our own saviors. I imagine there will be deaths, small, little ones, when God's people choose to pick up their scriptures and read it rather than watch another episode on Netflix. A small little death when they submit to the will of the Spirit to engage in prayer rather than gossip about their neighbor. I imagine there will be a small little death when we say no to the world and yes to where Jesus leads. Friends, as we begin to submit our wills and our ways to the work of the Spirit, see, God in His goodness will continue to prune that in our lives which is unhealthy and unfruitful so that we can experience life and life to the full, so that our lives might bear the fruit of the Spirit of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control that through the exacting surgical knife of the Spirit, God would form us into people of love. You know, it is, church, this aim that we become people of love, that that is what God is doing to us through the work of His Spirit, that we could love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and we could love those around us in the same ways that we love ourselves. And all of these spiritual practices, a practice like pilgrimage, with the practicing of the Sabbath, the practicing of prayer, and of worship, and of confession, the practice of silence and solitude, the practice of fasting, all of those practices are designed to set up the environment in our own hearts and minds and bodies so that God's Spirit can do His work to cut out that which is unhealthy and unfruitful, to kill the things that are of the world, so that we, like Jesus on Easter Sunday, can rise to life. You know, as a part of our worship church, we have been saying the psalms together here in this season of Lent. We did this morning at the beginning of worship as well, Psalm 126. You know, there's these, these few psalms, there's about 11 of them in the book of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. These are the songs that God's people would sing when they were on a pilgrimage, on the pilgrimage from their own homes, their own towns, their own villages, on pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. And as they journeyed, as they walked, 
as they pilgrimed towards that place of God's presence, they sang these songs, these songs of ascent. And this morning, we, we read from Psalm 126. It says, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. See, friends, as we begin to have the eyes of God's Spirit, we see how God is forming and shaping us in faith. We can see all of the good things that God is providing and how it is guiding and how He's delivering us so that we might be filled with joy. It goes on to say that those who go out weeping, those who are carrying seed to sow. Interesting imagery. Sowing seed. Seed, of course, is tossed onto the earth and ultimately buried in the earth. It undergoes its own little death, and it lies there, fed and watered by the nutrients in the soil and the rain that God provides, the light that He casts with the sun. So that out of that death might come life. Out of that ground, a small little resurrection. It's interesting then that God's people, as they're on pilgrimage, would say, those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, these little deaths, Scripture says, we will return then with songs of joy carrying sheaves with them. But in that death, there is life. So, friends, in this season, as we are on the way, we should expect that our destination is the same as Jesus, death to our will and our wants and our desires, death to sin and death of the devil. But we should also expect and trust and live in the truth that out of that death is life and life to the full. This is indeed a good, a good, a good journey. To God be the glory. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guard and keep our hearts in Christ Jesus today and every day. Amen.